I will be reading from Proverbs 26, 4 and 5. Do not answer a fool according to his folly, or you yourself will be just like him. Setting a, answer a fool according to his folly, or he will be wise in his own eyes. All right, good, and turn to uh, Luke chapter 20. Be in Luke chapter 20. This proverb that, uh, that Kyle read, a couple of them there, it says, answer a fool according to his folly, and then the next one says, don't answer a fool according to his folly. And I think the message there is that in some situations, no matter what you say, it's, it's going to be the wrong thing. Uh, I think about, have you ever found yourself in a situation like that? that it seems like no matter what you say, it's going to be the wrong thing, okay? I know that when I was in, in uh, middle school and high school, and I was taking math classes, because I, 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 always, I loved history and, and I loved PE class. Man, that was, that was the great stuff. And, um, and I, I did well in English. But I am convinced that uh, all of my uh, middle school teachers and high school math teachers we're, uh, we're doing whatever they could in order to try to confuse me so that whatever I put down on the test was the wrong answer. You know, that's that just, uh, I'm sure that's not really the case, but I always struggled with that. And I remember taking math tests, and I remember looking at them and thinking, no, 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 there's a letter in this problem, and letters don't belong in math, right? And and I remember just uh, just wrestling through it and thinking, you know, I think that no matter what I put down here, this is just going to go wrong anyway. Can anyone relate to that? Okay. Yeah, there's there's some of us out there that are that are gifted in other areas, maybe, and not that. But we're going to watch Jesus as he goes on to the Temple Mount today, and Jesus is going to have some interactions. That the reality is is probably no matter what he says. Is the PowerPoint up there, Michael? That's okay. If we need to, yeah, it's up here. Oh, there we are. Okay, good. I just didn't. Didn't uh, click far enough. Okay, thanks, Michael. And so, Jesus, we're going to see that he finds himself in situations that probably whatever he says is going to be the wrong thing. But the way Jesus handles this and some of the message that we learn from him are, are powerful. And so we're going to walk through it. In Luke chapter 20, and remember from last week, we're in the temple grounds here. The temple is that part that's just right in the middle and then the, the big courtyards around. That's the court of the Gentiles. That's the area where Jesus ran the... Uh, uh, he has just overturned the uh, the tables of the those who were who were buying and selling there in the temple grounds, and and he removed them from that area. <coughs> and so Jesus is going around in that area. Of the court of the Gentiles is probably where most of the the teaching that he does is, happens. And so Jesus, you can imagine, as he is walking around in there and he's teaching. There's people that are following. There's some that are leaving. There's some that are that are coming up to him, and he just continues to teach. And so in chapter twenty. Uh, starting in verse 1, it says, One day, as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple courts and proclaiming the good news, the chief priests and teachers of the law, together with the elders, came up to him. Tell us, by what authority are you doing these things? They said, Who gave you this authority? And remember, this is right after Jesus cleared out the money changers right there in the, in the temple. So they're coming up to see, okay, wait a minute, who is this guy and who gave him authority to do what he just did there? He didn't have authority to run everybody out of this place. And you notice who comes up here. It's the chief priests. Does anybody remember what the names of the chief priests at this point in time are? Because they're mentioned by name. Annas and Caiaphas are their names. And they are powerful, powerful men. And they come up there with... 
their gaggle of, of teachers of the law, and it says the elders. And so these are going to be some of the Sanhedrin that comes up there. So there's a big crew of people that come up to Jesus and said, who gave you authority to do these things? Who on earth do you think you are, buddy, that you could come in here and you could clear the temple out and that you can teach this stuff here? Who do you think you are? And we're going to get to that answer here in a bit. But we're going to see what Jesus, because he does respond here. In verse 3, he's replied, I will ask you a question. Tell me, John's baptism, was it from heaven or human origin? Okay, so that's a big question right there, because John the Baptist was so popular, as he was, he was one that really walked to a different drum. He didn't spend his time around Jerusalem, as we see from Scripture, but he spent his time out in the wild areas around the Jordan River. And people came to him from all over the place, to hear his message. You see even the Pharisees coming and listening to the message. And John was, was inflammatory enough about the things that he said that the people knew, the people understood, that John was willing to say the things that nobody else was willing to say, it, it seems like, in some ways. And so one of those things got him put in, put in jail. And through some uh, strange course of events that, uh, that, that are a bad deal, and the Gospels talk about it, is Herod throws this party and, and there's a, uh, his, his, be, uh, his wife's daughter comes and, and dances and he says, hey, I'll give you whatever you want. What do you want? Up to half my kingdom. And that was just a way of saying, hey, I'm in a generous mood. I'm going to give you what you want. And uh, she says, I would like the head of John the Baptist on the platter. Now, I don't think that's a typical thing for people to ask. I don't think that's what you ask for, you know, for anniversary present or something like that. And so... Her mom is grind, has issues with John the Baptist. And so because the dinner guests, it's, it happens, and Herod, is, or Herod executes John the Baptist or has him executed there. But you know what happens with martyrs? Is when you take somebody who is very, very popular with the people and you execute them, it just makes your problem from a political standpoint worse. And so you can imagine the undercurrents of the people as they're wandering around. They're still mad about this. They're still really unhappy that John the Baptist was executed because they know their scriptures. They know the people who spoke the truth many times in the history of Israel were executed. And that's not okay because God gets upset about that and God brings judgment when those type of things happen. So the people are upset about it. And but so Jesus, what he does, he says, all right, you want to talk about the authority that I come with, that I'm sharing. Uh, I want to ask you a question. John's baptism, was it from heaven or of human origin? Oh, no. And so they discussed it among themselves and said, if we say from heaven, he will ask, then why don't you believe me? Because John the Baptist talked about me. But if we say of human origin, all the people will stone us because they are persuaded that John was a prophet. So that's how mad the people are, is they're willing to execute the chief priests and leaders if they say that John was not a prophet. Because they realize there's some bad decisions that were made here. So they answered, we don't know where it is from. And Jesus replied, neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. And as I read through the context, I think what Jesus is saying here is, if you have no conviction to tell me if John's ministry and the baptism that he brought was from God or not, then we're not going to have this discussion, okay? Because this is just a political question if you have no conviction. If you want to come back, you have a conviction one way or the other, then let's talk. But until you're willing to have a conviction, then I'm not going to have this discussion with you. There's a principle there. Uh, there is, as Jesus sees, 
what they're trying to do is they just want Jesus gone. That's what they want. They, but, but they learned something from John the Baptist. You can't just go out and execute somebody because bad stuff happens. There's bad undercurrents with people. And so what we're going to do is we're going to go and we're going to try to make Jesus look like an idiot. That's what we're going to do. And we're going to ask him all these questions and we're going to try to, try to make him look dumb and discredit him in front of the people. And so the story continues. And Jesus is, uh, again, he's been waiting to get to Jerusalem here for a while. And starting in verse 9, he tells a story. He went on to tell the people, and apparently the religious leaders, they're all standing there. But you imagine he turns around and he starts talking to the people. He says, A man planted a vineyard, rented it to some farmers, and went away for a long time. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants so they could give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Okay, so this arrangement was pretty typical. There would be a rich landowner that would hire people to be able to take care of his vineyard. And when it was time for harvesting, that vineyard, he would take, they would bring that, um, the produce of that vineyard. And he would distribute it or he would sell it or whatever. And so usually, owners and tenants had a really good relationship because they liked working together. And here in this situation, you have something different happen. The owner sends a servant and says, hey, need to, uh, to, to get the fruit from this year. And what happens is they beat him. The tenants beat him and send him away. And so people that are listening to this, this parable, or even, even more than a parable, it's an allegory, they're thinking, what? what? That would be terrible. Why else would someone do that? Verse 11, he sent another servant, but that one they also beat and treated shamefully and sent away empty-handed. He sent still a third, and they wounded him and threw him out. Man, these guys are not learning. This is not going to go well, is it? Verse 13, then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my son, whom I love. Perhaps they will respect him. Okay, this, this is not what would happen in real life. And that's the point that Jesus is sharing here. But this owner of the vineyard is saying, I'm going to go the extra mile. And not only have I sent all these servants in order to try to, to bring in the fruit from this vineyard, I'm going to send my son himself. And verse 14 says, But when the tenants saw him, they talked the matter over. This is the heir, they said. Let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Okay. You probably see where this is going. And Jesus' point is what he's trying to get across. But he's painting a picture here of these tenants that really think they're God, or they're in the position of God. This, their situation in Jerusalem, their temple, it's, it's theirs. And they have come to a point where the things that they do are not on behalf of God or for God. It is theirs. And Jesus has come and he's messing stuff up and they're not happy about that. And so Jesus is showing them something here. Is that the kingdom that Jesus is bringing is the true kingdom of God. But they're not seeing it. They're not recognizing it. Because they have it established as this is ours, this is mine. He doesn't look like what I want him to. And so that's a problem. And... Uh, in ver- the next verse it says, What then will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. Oh. And so Jesus understand, they understand what Jesus is talking about. Is that God has sent prophets over and over and over through the centuries. And there's oftentimes uh, they were rejected, they were <laughs> beat, they were killed. And God finally says, I will send my son. And maybe they will listen to him. And what's going to happen is the people around are going to abuse him and kill him with a perspective of saying, if 
we kill him, then this is ours. We want things to be, this is our kingdom, this is our place. And Jesus says he will kill those tenants, he'll bring judgment, and he'll give the vineyard to others. Who do you think the others are? (laughs) Give the vineyard to others is speaking about the Gentile mission. Exactly. He's going to give this to others. And you see what the people say is when the people heard this, they said, God forbid, no, no, that's not going to happen. And Jesus looked directly at them and asked, this, then what is the meaning of that which is written? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on the stone will be broken to pieces and anyone on whom it falls will be crushed. So this idea of a cornerstone or capstone, that was when... uh, when buildings were built in Jesus' day, not unlike our time, but you had buildings being built out of stone. And so the cornerstone would be a stone that would support two walls and would bring those two walls together. And so if you want a cornerstone, you, there's, there's a stereotype of what that cornerstone is going to look like, right? It's going to be flat. It's going to be big. It's going to be strong. And what happens is Jesus is sharing is that I have come as a cornerstone for this, this kingdom that God is bringing in and, and is, is growing. But I don't look like what you expect me to look like. I am this cornerstone that is crooked and, and all of that, and, and it's being thrown out. But guess what? God is using this. God is using me to create something amazing and big that you can't see and you can't anticipate at this point in time. And, and boy... Look what happens here. It says, The teachers of the law and the chief priests looked for a way to arrest him immediately because they knew he had spoken this parable against him. But they were afraid of the people. And so they tried, they're trying to make him look, look dumb in front of everybody else, but it is not working. And the people are watching saying, Wait a minute, this, wait a minute, he's talking to the religious leaders. He's taking issue with them. And they're watching and they're waiting to see what's going to happen. And he says, God is bringing judgment on those who reject me. That's the, the parable there of the cornerstone. Is God's bringing judgment on those who reject me. Think about that. These religious leaders, their, their great problem, and we see this over and over again, is they had said, I have Jewish, I have all of this, I look at what God has been given, and instead of saying, God, what do you want me to do with it? said, this is my kingdom, this is my place, things are the way I want them to be, Jesus, I want you just to get out of here. The story continues in, uh, in verse 20. It says, Keeping close watch on him, they sent spies who pretended to be sincere. They hoped to catch Jesus in something he said so that they might hand him over to the power and authority of the governor. And so they realize, okay, Jesus is on to us. Uh, he's not asking, answering these questions. So we're going to get some people that, that go and, and pretend to be honest and sincere, just really asking honest questions. And so the spies questioned him, Teacher, we know that you speak and teach what is right and that you do not show partiality, but, the, but teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Hey, boy, that's, that's a great way to start, isn't it? Just flatter him a bit, say all these nice things and kind things about him. And then here comes the question, Is it right for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Okay. Think about this question from a, a Jewish perspective, those people that are, that are there at the temple grounds. It's placed behind us, and they're watching, and they're learning. They understand that in the Old Testament, the, the scriptures before Jesus, it's, it's real clear that 
Israel is supposed to be a theocracy. In other words, God is supposed to lead Israel and rule over Israel. And so any king that is, according to Scripture, any king that is appointed is a king that is supposed to enforce the rules of God and bring people back to God. And see, the problem is, is that we've got this king that we're subject to right now, Caesar, who uses all that funds for terrible, awful, pagan things. And I know very well that the taxes that I pay are going to go straight to finance these pagan practices and these pagan temples all over the Roman world. And I don't want the money that I've got to go to those things. That, that's, that makes me sick. And, and I'm not even sure if that's scriptural for me to, to pay taxes in that sort of context. These guys are so evil. These emperors are so evil that a lot of them are even deified or claim deity before they even they pass away. How on earth can I, as, as a good follower of God justify doing something like that. Can you see the tension? Yeah, we can see you can see the tension there. And so they're struggling. And so Jesus, if he says, Oh sure, yeah, you, you need to pay taxes, then what happens is it damages his credibility with anyone who is wrestling with conscience there. But if he says on the other side, No, it's wrong to pay taxes to Caesar, you should not do that, what happens is they're trying to report him to the governor. And, and the Jews had, they had issues with this because there's, a, there's all sorts of writings that talk about, uh, from Josephus, the historian from this time, is there's the Jews on, on several different occasions would say, hey, we're not paying taxes anymore. We're not going to finance this trash that you, you use our taxes for. And there would be several of them executed. They'd crucify some. The Roman armies would come in and say, yeah, you're going to pay taxes. That's how it's going to work, whether you like it or not. We don't care what your conscience says. We're going to do this. And so this was a big deal. It was a big question. And Jesus, you notice what he says here. He says, as he continues on, he says, He saw through their duplicity and said to them, Show me a denarius, whose image and inscription are on it. Caesar's, they replied. He said to them, Then give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. And so Jesus understands here that he's being asked a yes or no question where there is not a yes or no answer. Okay? And that's where he can, any of us can get ourselves in trouble is when we answer or ask the wrong question. And he realizes they're, answering, they're asking the wrong question here. If you want to talk more about this or look more at this, look at Romans 13. Paul fleshes this out some and talks about it some more. But they were unable to trap him in what he said there in public. And astonished by his answer, they became silent. Jesus says it's not that simple. Okay? Caesar has authority. God has authority. For our purposes now, you need to honor both. Okay, because, again, this isn't to sit down at the coffee shop and let's walk through this. Let's try to see what God wants for us. They're just trying to trap him. And so Jesus responds, says, you need to honor both. Okay. The story continues here with the Sadducees. In uh, verse 27, it says, Some of the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to Jesus with a question. Now, Sadducees, again, it says that they, they don't believe in the resurrection. So Sadducees were, again... Part of the, the ruling council for the Jews, in fact, they met in the temple there, in, in part of the temple grounds, when they would come together and they would, they would discuss the matters of how do we, how do we shepherd over uh, the, the people of Israel. They, uh, the Sanhedrin was made up of 70 elders, and those 70 elders, most of whom were, were part of the Sadducee group. The Sadducees would, what we would, be, would call the conservatives. And they did not want change. They wanted to conserve things as they were at that point in time. They didn't want to stir the pot with Rome. They had 
fairly uh, amiable relationships with the Roman governors. And so they were extremely wealthy. And remember, we've talked about is wealth was a sign of blessing from God. And so they were seen by many of the people as, oh, these people are, you know, they're, they're way up there. They're beyond what we can touch. And uh, God has blessed them so greatly and they have all this power. And so we just, they do their thing and we do our thing. Well, these Sadducees have, have not had a whole lot of interaction with Jesus, not like the, the Pharisees. They lived there in Jerusalem. They stayed in that area primarily. And so here you have the Sadducees, finally, and this shows how serious it is. They're threatened enough that Jesus is going to, to change their power structure, that they come out of the shadows, and they come to Jesus, and they ask these questions here. Um, they said, Teacher, they said, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife with no children, the man must marry the widow and raise up the offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first one married a woman and died childless. The second, and then the third, married her. In the same way, the seven died, leaving no children. Finally, the woman died too. Now then, at the resurrection, whose wife will she be since the seven were married to her? Okay, what he's referring to, what the question they're referring to is leveret marriage. And the idea is inheritances could be continued on through, through the brother of the original husband. Okay? And so this story actually comes from, from a document during this time that was scattered around, that was, that was read. And it, what it does is, for us, I think we miss some of what the, the Sadducees are asking here. Because we understand from Scripture is that they did not consider anything after the books of Moses... Scripture, And so what they understood was Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy to be Scripture, and everything else was not. That's where, where they were at. Um, and they, they didn't believe, and because of that, uh, apparently they didn't believe in the resurrection, they didn't believe in angels, they didn't believe in all of that. So after the destruction of Jerusalem, the, the Sadducees disappeared. And so you don't see this type of teaching in Judaism today. Um, or not much, anyway. It's, it's gone. But you can imagine these guys sitting there thinking, all right, here's the question. And this question is supposed to be one of these questions that's impossible to answer. Like the math problems I was telling you about. Okay, Think about it this way. Um, I know that there's been a number of times that I've sat down with people and we're talking about how to become a Christian and one of the questions that comes up is when I realize is that conviction is getting pretty close to the heart question is, what about all of those people that are on some desert island somewhere that have never heard the message of Jesus? What is going to happen to them? Or, what happens if someone is on their way to commit their life to Christ and is going to be baptized and they die in a car wreck on the way there? What is God going to do in a situation like that? Okay, Those questions, there's, the way I answer those is, boy, I'm glad I'm not God. God's going to handle all that, but what about you? Right now, okay? Because that's oftentimes, those questions are just to take the, the, the spotlight off ourselves. But think about this question, okay? Is it possible for God, or can God create a rock big enough that's impossible for him to lift? Okay? Do you see the conundrum there? Because if you say, yeah, God can make a rock big enough to lift, well, he's not that strong. But if he... he can't, then there's something that he can't create. You see, that's the type of question that they're asking right here, because what they're asking is, they don't believe in the resurrection anyway, and so they're saying, Jesus, this lady married all these these different guys, so who is she going to be married to in the next life when the resurrection happens? 
And so this story is supposed to be like one of these questions that, that no matter how you answer it, you look dumb from their perspective. That's what they're trying to get at. And so look what Jesus says. He replies, the people of this age marry and are given marriage. And he responds with two different, two different arguments here. But those who are considered worthy of taking part in the age to come and the resurrection from the dead will neither marry nor be given in marriage. And they can no longer die, for they are like the angels. They are God's children, since they are children of the resurrection. And so Jesus says here, okay, first of all, let's, let's start here. There's going to be no marriage at the resurrection. Okay, now when we read through that, there's all sorts of different responses that, that people give. And I've, I've sat across the table from people that have been married a long time and their, their, their husband or wife is their best friend. And they read that and they think, oh no, this is, oh, how is that possible that I'm not going to, will I even know this person that is sitting next to me that I've been married to for all these years? Will I even know them in heaven? And, and there's a, a real negative response. And there's others that are like, okay, I don't have to date in heaven. Thank goodness, uh, you know, my, the relationship, uh, good, I am fine with this. You know, that's, it depends on our, our context here is how we respond to this. And so here's a couple of things just to think about and consider here, is that resurrection in the next life is going to be so different in so many ways, it's hard to make this apples-to-apples comparison, okay? But oftentimes, like with someone that's been married for a long time and has had just a great response, a great um, great experience in marriage, can look at this, and I think we can find comfort in saying this, is that when we all get to heaven, we understand that this, the relationship between all of us is, is going to be so much better than we can ever imagine here. Okay, And so that friendship that you feel with your spouse, or, or and if you've been married a long time, just imagine having great friendships with so many other people that you can walk through life with. I remember, or walked through eternity with. I remember a lesson that I heard once uh, preached to an older congregation that, that came up as the congregation was graying and, and the question came up, as, and it came up a lot because there were a lot of funerals. And the question was, will I even recognize my spouse in heaven? This doesn't sound very good to me. And the minister talked through, he said, yeah, I, don't, I don't know all of this, but what I do know is just imagine this situation. When you get there, we're not going to be, when we get to heaven, we're not going to be dumb. You know, we're not going to know, not know who the people are around us. But just imagine coming into the kingdom of God and seeing the person that you're married to in this life and say, wow, you helped me get to heaven. Thank you so much. Let's go through and let's meet all these wonderful people. And he just painted a picture like that. And so I think one of the things that's important to note is that there, this is good. This is supposed to be good news from Jesus, all right? And so there's, there's not marriage we have here in heaven, but we live forever. And the second thing that he brings up here is, in the account of the burning bush, even Moses showed that the dead rise, for he calls the Lord the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living, for in him all are alive. Some of the teachers of the law responded, Well said, teacher, and no one dared ask him any more questions after this point. So what Jesus does is part of where the Sadducees were at is they understood there's no resurrection because the law books of Moses don't talk about that. But what Jesus shows them is he walks them back and he says, you know when, when, when God appeared to Moses at the burning bush, you know, remember what he said? He said, I'm the God of these people that have been dead already and he uses present tense. 
And so Jesus' point is, oh, no, no, no. They're not gone. These people are there. They're still alive. Yes, there very much is from Exodus, a teaching of the resurrection. Absolutely. And so Jesus is here on the Temple Mounds. People decide that they're going to quit asking him questions. And, uh, but the big question that still remains is, who on earth do you think you are, Jesus? Who do you think you are coming in here, turning over the tables of the money changers, teaching these people, not answering our questions the way we want you to answer our questions? Who do you think you are, Jesus? And his response from the parable is, I think I am the Son of God that has come. And that is terrifying to them. And part of what that means, according to Jesus here, is that God is going to bring judgment on those who reject me. That's what's going to happen. And when you look at what happens next in chapter 21, it's what we dealt with last week, where Jesus leaves the temple and he talks about the destruction that is going to come on the people that are there. And you can imagine Jesus as these Sadducees and the Pharisees and teachers of the law, even Annas and Caiaphas, that come up to him face to face and say, what are you doing here? Who do you think you are? You can imagine there's that compassion deep in Jesus that says, these guys have no idea who I am. They still don't. And they have no idea the destruction that they're bringing on themselves and many others by not listening and by rejecting me here. Because I am the Son of God that has come into the world to further God's kingdom. And there's something else that's important here that Jesus says, is there's a resurrection coming for those who follow me. <laughs> and that's good news. And you can imagine as Jesus is, uh, I, can't, I can imagine that he says it with a smile on his face when he is talking to the Sadducees. And they're saying, wait a minute, there's no resurrection. Who, who, do, who on earth do you think you are? And Jesus says, oh yeah, it's been right under your nose all the time, you just didn't realize it. Is these people that that you read about, that are dead and gone from this life. Oh, they're not gone. Oh, no, 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 they're not gone. God is still the God of them as well. And I have to think that as Jesus is thinking ahead to what's going to happen later this week when he's going to be executed, Jesus knows better than anybody that's ever walked the earth that that's not the end. That that is just a transformation into something much, much better. And that is a question and that is a decision that all of us walk through every day. Am I going to be one who rejects God and decides to go the other direction? Or am I going to be one who looks forward to the resurrection and says, Jesus, you walked ahead of me. I'm going to walk in your footsteps and I look forward to a resurrection someday where everything is better than it is now. And that's what all of this is about. If you'd like to become a Christian and be part of that resurrection, you're welcome to head to the back. The elders are waiting back there to pray and to talk with you. And if you have anything else that's on your heart that you, uh, you want to talk about or, or pray with the elders, you're welcome to head to the back. Let's stand and sing together.